today we are continuing our series. This is actually the last week. Everyone say the last week. This is the last week on our series on how to pray. And so I want us to kind of level set and get all on the same page. I want us to say it together, and we're going to say it uh, in the King James. This is the way kind of I learned it growing up in Sunday school. So if you would, say it with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So this idea that's in uh, the King James Version is really important because specifically the last line is, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This is the big idea I want us to leave with today. The Message Bible says it like this. Eugene Peterson kind of wrote it in contemporary American and translated to this. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You're a blazing beauty. Yes, yes, yes. And so this big idea of like, amen means yes, may it be so. And so this idea of like, God, yes, come work amongst us. But as we close this series, the big idea that I want us to lean into today is for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. And as I was thinking about the Lord's Prayer, I'm a English major, I'm kind of a nerd into word counts, all that sort of stuff. And I wondered how did the Lord's Prayer stack up in word counts compared to other kind of well-known or even lesser known documents? So I did some research and found out there are 1,322 words in the Declaration of Independence. This sort of founding document for us as Americans, there are 1,322 words in that. And then I was wondering like, okay, what about like kind of unimportant documents? Like I wonder how that stacks up. And listen to this, government regulations on the sale of cabbage total 26,911 words. That's a lot of words about cabbage and the sale of cabbage. And so it's like, all right, well, that's a lot of ink spilled for that. What about this? Uh, the Gettysburg Address, this famous, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., I took my kids there last year, and we went to kind of the Lincoln Memorial, and on the steps, the Gettysburg Address is there, and the Gettysburg Address is 286 words, a very tight and simple speech that Abraham Lincoln came that really unified our country, and so I wondered, like, okay, Lord's Prayer and all these sort of things, how did it stack? Would it have the most words? Would it have the least? Any guesses on how many words are in the Lord's Prayer? 66 words. You were in first service, cheaters. 66 words. <laughs> no one in first service said that. 66 words were in the Lord's Prayer. But it's a sticky idea. It's like, wow, that's pretty powerful that all these other documents, we have 26,000 words on the sale of cabbage, 1,300 words in the Declaration of Independence, and God changed the world with this prayer that was so simple and so accessible with only 66 words. The big idea is this. It doesn't take many words to change the world. It doesn't take many words to change the world. Because in the Lord's Prayer, the reason we've spent weeks and weeks and weeks on it is because there's a lot of complex ideas in this simple little prayer. In the prayer, there's the idea of faith. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? There's this big idea that really sticks with me in the Lord's Prayer of provision. What does it mean to pray for provision? And Ross talked about in this series about the idea of daily bread, this idea of like, we want, we want to hit the lottery and win the lottery and be taken care of forever. But no, the Lord's Prayer says every single day we should say, God, provide for us and kind of pray those sort of prayers. God, we need your provision today. And sometimes that's scary. Forgiveness. 
This is a big one. What does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to actually forgive? And what it means to forgive is we have to know that we were forgiven, therefore we can forgive others. And so today we're not diving too much into those things. I wanna really focus on the last line. And I wanna imagine as we're doing this and wrapping up the series that we're actually like not sitting in a sanctuary, but we're all sitting in a living room together and talking about this message, maybe in a circle. We're all sitting together. So I wanna set the scene a little bit. Uh, we're, we're all eating snacks. What kind of snacks are we eating in, the, in, our, in our setting? What? Uh, Cheez-Its, pretzels, goldfish, queso. All right, Cheez-Its and quesos and Butterfingers. All right, you're a healthy bunch. Uh, all right, those are the snacks. All right, what, so we got some music going on as you're walking into our living room. What kind of music is playing? What music is playing? Hip-hop? Janet Jackson, I heard. <laughs> What's that? Coltrane? What's that? Justin Bieber, all right. <laughs> this is a special group. <laughs> a lot of people just left our uh, little group. Uh, no, I love Justin Bieber. <laughs> and so we're sitting there, and then we're sitting around. What are we sitting around on? What are we sitting on? Are we sitting inside, outside? What are we sitting on? Bean bags. Okay, comfortable group. All right, Justin Bieber, Cheez-Its, and bean bags. Okay, this is an awesome group. Okay, so we're sitting around, and we're talking about this message, and we're all here in a circle, and then uh, I, your group leader, asks, like, hey, who here in this group would like to pray more? Would say, hey, Rob, I wanna pray more in my life. I wanna have a more active prayer life. I wanna really dedicate my life to praying more. If you were honest, and I want you to have a moment of honesty with us and your closest friends, and actually raise your hand of like, that's me, I'd like to pray more. Ready, set, go. Okay, so a lot of us, that's something like, yes, this is something that I would wanna do. And then as we're sitting around in the circle on our beanbags, I'd say, okay, well, what's the problem then? We all, this is something you all just raise your hands. This is something you're saying, Rob, I wanna do. Why are we not doing it as much? And I think a bunch of answers would come out. We'd say, you know what? Time, I wanna pray more, but time, my schedule's so busy. Another, others of us would be honest and say, actually what it is for me is discipline. I just don't have the discipline to pray as much as I would. Others would be even more honest and say, I just forget. I come to church and I'm excited about it, but then I leave church and I forget. I don't really think about it. And I think all those are real reasons of why we don't pray more. But I think there is one central limiting belief to why we don't pray more. There's one central limiting belief to why we don't pray more. And I wanna talk about limiting beliefs because they're really powerful. And there's these things that we have in our own life. And sometimes we don't even really know that they're there. We're not quite honest with them. Let me give a couple of examples of limiting beliefs. One is, this is from a long time ago. Everyone used to think the world was flat. It was flat. Sorry, any flat earthers in here, you're welcome at one chapel. Uh, but, but, but for a long time, everyone thought that. The world is flat, okay? And so everyone had this belief. And the truth, the thing about limiting beliefs that's so interesting is there's all these sort of things that reinforce the belief. People would go and say, oh, people sailed away from this place and they never came back. And so that means the world is flat. People would think like, all I have to do is look at the ground and look outside and I don't see a sphere. I don't see that sort of shape. I see flatness. So I believe the world is flat in that sort of way. And so we have these beliefs and it takes something really profound to smash through and break through those beliefs. Let me make it a little bit more practical. Some of you hold on to this belief and this is a famous saying that says this, if I want something done right, I do it, I do it myself. 
If I want to do something done right, I do. Have you ever tried to delegate something to someone else and you're like, hey, will you make this thing? Or hey, will you help out with this? Or like a lot of times Sarah asks me like, hey, we're making dinner. Can you chop these things? And so I'll start chopping them. And I can see her looking out of the corner of her eyes like, it's like too big and too slanty and not cubed. And oh my gosh, it's just chopping Rob. <laughs> and she loves me. She's like, oh, it's so cute. He's trying, but that's not how you chop. <laughs> There's a right way to chop. <laughs> And so I do, and, and we have these limiting beliefs of like, you know what, if I delegate this thing, someone's gonna mess it up. So I'm just gonna hold on to it. And what happens is we do everything ourselves. We put all the pressure on ourselves. And we've had those things where we've delegated and it's turned out wrong. So we're like, I can't do anything. I have to do everything myself. And it limits you. It limits your ability to trust others. So what does that look like for your spiritual life? What is the limiting belief that we have? Well, I think if we are really honest, if, if we weren't in a big group, but it was just me and you. And I said, why don't you pray more? what you'd say is this, God doesn't listen to me when I pray. God doesn't listen to me when I pray. And I wonder why, why you would say that or why I've thought that before myself, if I'm honest. And I think part of the reason why is because we live in a world where listening is kind of broken. And the truth is, listening is a big, big deal. I did a bunch of research on listening and like how we listen and some ideas and stats that I got. We spend 78 to 80% of our waking hours in some form of communication. So 70 to 80% we're communicating. Even if we're on our phone, a lot of that is spent communicating with others. And of that, on average, they said this, 9% is writing, 16% of that time is reading, 30% is speaking, and 45% is listening. 45%. So a lot of our communication isn't us saying stuff right now, it's what the rest of you in this room are doing, it's listening. That listening really matters. Now, if you're a stay-at-home parent, this is a true stat. Stay-at-home parents, 127% of your time is spent listening. Because <laughs> kids talk all the time. <laughs> they talk a lot. <laughs> and so I did other research and found uh, all sorts of CEOs and business leaders who talked about listening and how broken listening was at their places of business and their culture. A few interesting quotes that I found. First of all, one CEO said, frankly, I never thought of listening as an important subject by itself. But now that I'm aware of it, I think perhaps 80% of my work depends on my listening to someone or on someone else listening to me. Another leader said, I've been thinking about the things that have gone wrong over the last couple of years, and I suddenly realized that many of the troubles have resulted from someone not hearing something or getting it disoriented or distorted in some way. Another leader said this, it is interesting to me that we have considered so many facets of communication in the company, but have inadvertently overlooked listening. In schools, we're taught to train to read, to write, to speak, to communicate, all these ways that we communicate out, but we're not take, taught to receive and how to listen. But I think what we also believe deeply is that our words have power. Uh, to give an example of this story, I kind of said like, there's this story that happened, uh, you saw Brent and I in announcements there. We've kind of been working together creatively for a long, long time. Uh, this is something we, uh, I did this production called The Thorn and this was back in Colorado Springs and Brent and I were working on it together and we'd always had this one narrator. And this year I said, hey, let's switch it up and do something different. We're gonna try Doubting Thomas as the narrator. And they literally like put it on the front page of the paper. We had 30,000 tickets sold. It was a big, big deal. And here's kind of Brent and I, and this, that's Brent right over there, kind of in full like Thomas makeup. And this is me kind of explaining like, Brent, this is all you have to do and you're gonna be just fine. And so it's opening night and we're there. And on opening night, we had scripted out each scene 
kind of masterfully, but there's this uh, Last Supper scene. And for that scene, I said, hey, you can just kind of like talk about some of the food and explain that sort of stuff. And, you know, just kind of ad lib a little bit and you're going to be fine. And so Brent was like, all right, this is going to go great. That night he's there and he's talking about all the food that they ate. And so his nerves are going. He's like, you know, they're eating like olives and unleavened bread and Jesus is eating ham. And he, he kind of said it and I saw him like stop right in his tracks and there was an audible gasp like, <gasps> like <laughs> what kind of church believes Jesus was eating ham? And <laughs> for those, I know, <laughs> Nehemiah's like, I know Jesus ate bacon. <laughs> but for the learned, <laughs> for the learned scholar, they would know that ham is not anything pork is unkosher. And so that a Jewish man would not have been eating that. And so there was this, big gasp and that sort of stuff. And it's weird because I was like, I don't know if anyone was really listening or paying attention as he's talking about the food, but the moment he said ham, boom, there was an audible, everyone was locked in the room. And the reality is this, the reason is because our words have power. You have to believe that this message is gonna last. Our words have power. And I know you believe that because you can remember certain moments when you heard words from people and they tore you down. You can also remember moments where someone said something to you and they saw you and it gave you life. If you say the wrong thing at the wrong moment in this day and age, your career, your life could be over. I mean, it could really be spontaneously gone wrong. A tweet that goes wrong, and this is by celebrities, ordinary people, one tweet can define your whole life in 2020. It's pretty incredible. Our words have power. I know there are many things that were said by loved ones to you that hurt, there are many things that you might've said to loved ones that also hurt. There are words that you've spoken that you wish you could take back. And so we believe that our words have power. So my question for you, One Chapel, is why do we think our prayers to God are powerless? Why do you think that? And I think it's all rooted in listening. I think it's because we don't feel listened to all the time. Have you ever had this? Have you ever been out in the lobby or out with someone or maybe you're at like a house party or something like that and you're having a conversation with someone and they're like looking at you, but they're not really, they're kind of nodding and that, but you can tell like their brain, they're not looking on their phone, but their brain is just like, they're like not there. They're not with you. They're kind of off in the distance. Have you ever had that sort of conversation? Or maybe uh, you've had that sort of uh, conversation and um, you're, have you ever had this happen? Have you ever been in a meeting this has happened to me in a meeting or with a group of friends and you've sort of pitched an idea and it falls flat. And then five minutes later, <laughs> someone else pitches that exact same idea and they're like, Dave, that is brilliant. And you're like, what? <laughs> I just said that. I just said it. A few of you are like, oh, I know what he's talking about. I know that sort of feeling. That sort of idea falls black. We're like, I, I, I wasn't heard. Or maybe, have you ever talked with a spouse and they just seem distracted? You ever talk to a friend or a, a husband, a wife, a kid, and they're just looking at their phone? That's what, and they're kind of like nodding, but like they're saying, hey, what's on the screen is more important than what's in front of me. I think we get this message all the time of like, I'm saying words and people are not hearing my words. People are not listening. And this is what that does in us. When we don't listen to us, when people don't listen to us, we feel unimportant. When people don't listen to us, we feel unimportant. We say to ourselves, I don't matter. There's someone more popular or interesting or more important with a good idea. We also have another belief that comes to us. We believe we're uninteresting. We think we're uninteresting. We say, I don't have a way of words. 
I'm not expressive enough. And then eventually what we do is we think there is no point in trying to communicate. We think there is no point in trying to communicate. And this goes back to our beginning question, which is eventually we're like, there's no point in praying to God because he's not really listening to me. He's not really there. And so this is the last week, like I've said, of the How to Pray series. And my hope is this is something that wasn't just a nice way to start the year, but this actually takes a hold in our lives. And whether you've been here all the time or this is your first message hearing about prayer, I hope the idea of my prayers matter really take a hold in your life. And I think for that to happen, three beliefs have to creep into your life. The number one foundational belief is this, believe that God listens to us. Everybody say, listen. Believe that God listens to us. We got this uh, book title, or we got this sermon title from uh, Pete Grieg, who wrote the book called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. And in this book, he kind of tells the story of this message or this thing he prayed to God a long time ago, and then he kind of forgot about that prayer, and then he tells the story of God speaking something to him. And I'm gonna read this quote from the book. Pete, he said that he is God. You need to understand that I never forget a single prayer you pray. You forget most of the things you ask me, but I never do. It was true that I'd forgotten visiting the city, let alone asking God that question, but the one for whom a thousand years are like a day had brought me back here now, apparently just to give me an answer. The one who numbers every hair in our heads and stores every tear that we cry also remembers every prayer that we pray. This is a mind-blowing truth. If God continues to work towards the fulfillment of our prayers long after we've forgotten praying them, there must be occurrences and apparent coincidences in your life and mine. Most days that are direct answers to prayers and questions we don't even remember asking. Think about that. Our entire lives may be shaped to very significant sense by the communication of, accumulation of such prayers of our own and those of others. There are things that may have happened in your life like, wow, that was a miracle. That sort of happened. That sort of fell in place. I don't know how that happened. I don't know who prayed for it. There may have been someone else praying for you for that thing to happen. You may have never known about it. There are other things that have happened in your life, things that have happened that don't even make sense. And it may be in prayer. They prayed, prayed six months ago, one years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. You forgot about that prayer, but God did not. This is a big idea that we have to take to heart. And I think it's hard to take this idea to heart because for us, conversations are so disposable. In fact, for us, communication in general is so disposable. I, uh, a lot of what my work is, is I create videos, I create productions, I create graphics, that sort of stuff. And people remember them one second and they forget them the next. It's just, we're always on moving to the next thing. And so, but I think there's actually proof that uh, something that lasts and words that last are powerful. Has anyone here heard, heard, heard of the five love languages? Five love languages, you know what those are? Okay, so five love languages, are words of affirmation, acts of service, quality times, gifts, and touch. And so I wanna talk about gifts for a moment and tell you, I'm gonna tell you a secret and a hack to the best gift that you can give. You ready? I'm gonna tell you this. And so you wanna know what the best gift you can give? The best gift you can give is not kind of the text two days from Christmas about a friend or someone else like that. Hey, what do you want? They text you and you get it. It's like, hey, that sort of thing. The best gift that you can give is when you hear something said six months ago, nine months ago, and then nine months later, you bring that present and you open it up and it's a little t-shirt or a mug or something that reminds of that thing that the person said. And they're like, whoa, you remembered. And when you give that gift, that's something that was said a long time ago and you open that up and you say that, that is an incredibly powerful gift. 
Because what it says is, oh, you were listening. And when we feel listened to, we feel loved, we feel seen, we feel taken care of. And so that's the reason why that's so powerful. And the reality is we serve a God who listens to us. A couple of big ideas here. One, John 3, there's a story of Jesus actually having a conversation with Nicodemus and it's really powerful and they're going back and forth and that's where we get John 3, 16 from. And then in John 4, there's another conversation that really jumps out to me and this is of the woman at the well and uh, Jesus asks her for a drink in the middle of this story. And so I'm gonna start there. Jesus asks her for a drink and then in verse 11, sir, the woman says, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well to drink from it himself as he did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I get them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. So you have to realize this is a supernatural moment of what Jesus is saying. This woman was not wearing a shirt that said, I have had five husbands and the man I'm with now is actually not my husband. She was not wearing a shirt that says that. Like this is something that Jesus actually saw and he looked into her and he looked into her life. And as I, I heard this story and was thinking about it this week, I wondered how many prayers or how many moments of heartache did she have with those five different husbands? How many times did she feel discarded and say, God, why am I so discarded? God, why do I keep being rejected? God, why do I keep being unseen? Rob, you're telling me that God listens to me, but I feel so many times that my prayers are unanswered, that my prayers are, are passed over, that God is not listening to me. But I want you to fast forward to verse 39, which is this. He says, uh, towards the end of the story, it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Not because of what Jesus said, but because of the woman's testimony. The woman said this, he told me everything I ever did. And see what happened is she prayed all those prayers. She may have been heartbroken. She may have been feeling distracted or, or discarded, but God said, no, I see you, I hear you, I'm listening to you, you have value. And because he saw the value in her, everyone else saw that value and he redeemed her life and he redeemed her story to do something powerful. Prayers and heartache that was there a long time ago were redeemed in a way that she could have never saw coming just because of one conversation at a well. And that's a big idea this morning. Is this, a prayer isn't something that you pray once, wait five minutes and then let go. It's a long going, lifelong, ongoing conversation with God. Idea number two is this, give God control. Everyone say control. Give God control. Control is something that we do not like to give up. In our heart and our core, we really do not like to give up. We like to own control. I really learned this. Uh, I have four daughters and so here's a picture of um, my girls right here, four daughters. And so uh, this a this little while ago, they were young, but I realized like at an early age, all four of them, you know what they want? They want control, like they really do. And when I learned this is when they all could start speaking and I would ask this question, hey, like let's go get a hamburger. Where do you guys wanna go eat? And Juliana, who's the first girl on the far left there, she would say, oh, I wanna go to uh, In-N-Out. Let's go to In-N-Out and get a hamburger there. And then Claire right next to her would say, 
oh, I want to go to Whataburger and get a burger there, okay? And so she would like have an opinion all of a sudden. Who's on team in and out Who's team Whataburger? Who's team P. Terry's? All right. So then, of course, Abby would say, hey, Dad, I want to go to Panda Express. <laughs> and then Emma Jane would say, I want chocolate. <laughs> and so I have these, <laughs> I'm trying to make one little decision, but I have four human beings who all want to control this sort of situation because it's hardwired into us to want that sort of control. My dad used to tell stories and he would say, back in my day, and I promised myself like when I became a dad, I would never tell a back in my day story. But I'm gonna tell a back in my day story this morning. <laughs> you see, back in my day, there was something called the Top 40 with Casey Kasem. Top 40 with Casey Kasem. And what would happen is once a week, Casey Kasem would go and it'd spend hours and he would play like all the top 40 songs and you'd have to listen through songs. You'd have to listen through commercials, all this sort of stuff. And so I'd listen through those songs and wait for my song to come on. And so I'd listen and listen and listen. And finally, every week it was there and this was early 90s. And then all of a sudden, I would turn it up when I heard the words of Robert Matthew Van Rinkle who had come across my stereo. And there would be a baseline boom, ding, 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 that would come up, and I'd be like, "Oh man, it's time!" And then he would start whispering, "Ice, ice, baby." And I knew at that moment that the whole country was stopping, collaborating, and listening to the wisdom of Vanilla Ice. And it meant so much to me, not just that I was listening to this song, but that everyone else, we were all listening, people in their cars, people driving, people on walks, people all sorts of places, we were all listening to this song together. And there was such power in that. And that's what I loved about the top 40 of Casey Kasem. That does not exist anymore. And the reason why is because that's such an ancient idea. We want control now. We don't want to wait for 40 songs just to get the song we like. We want to have control of our own Spotify playlists. We want to have control of our own social media feeds. We want to have control of our own uh, Netflix queue. We want to control when we want it, what we want it. And this is not a kingdom idea. You see, Pete Grieg actually explains uh, the dangers of this. It's because we don't want to relinquish control. We want to hold it all the time. But Pete Grieg says this in this passage. He talks about King David and talks about this last line and says this, in these carefully chosen words, King David is relinquishing his kingdom. He's talking about a psalm and comparing it to the last line. His power and his glory to the king of kings, giving back to God every blessing he himself has ever received. We live in an age where this is rare. We love to speak of the kingdom of, to the kingdom without ever really wanting to surrender anything costly to the king. Our time, our money, our sexual ethics, our achievements, our dreams for our lives are all resolutely ours. Personal surrender and costly sacrifice are rare. The kingdom of God is an unthreatening, ephemeral concept, a vaguely and pleasantly desirable future, not the kind of concrete present reality that grazes our knees as we relinquish everything we cherish to the king. But to pray these closing lines of the Lord Prayer is to give the kingdom, the power, and the glory back to God. It's to give them our own little empires, our family, our ministry, our career, and say, yours, Lord, is the kingdom. It's to give him the power, the bases we built, and say, yours is the power. It's to give him our credibility, our trophies of success, and say, yours, Lord, is the glory forever and right now. It's an important idea of like, we want, we want to hold on to all these accomplishments. This is what I've done. This is who I am. But it's actually like, 
relinquishing that control up to God. And this idea of God in control is throughout all the scriptures. Psalm 22, eight says this, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Colossians 1.17 says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Ephesians 4.6 says, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see these verses of God being in control. There's something in us as Americans, as people who live in 2020, who's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I wanna give up that control. But I think there's a bit of a lie to control. I think the reality is control leads to anxiety. Control leads to anxiety. Because the problem with control is if I have control of everything, if things go great, it's on me. But if things go wrong, it's all my fault. It's all my problem. And that's not the kingdom. That, can't, that control can lead to selfishness, Control can lead to manipulation. I want to control this situation. I'm going to uh, manipulate it. Control can lead to resentment. Why does that person get this and I don't get enough? I want mine. And the reality is relinquishing control leads to freedom. Relinquishing control leads to freedom. You see, relinquishing control says, okay, I'm going to trust you, God. Okay, I'm going to rely on you, God. And there are certain moments where we have to relinquish control because we realize we've come at our end. We've come to the end of our power. And that's the final idea here this morning. Idea number three is trust God has power. Everyone say power. power. I wanna read a story in uh, Luke chapter 8, 43. And actually I'm gonna read two stories. And a lot of times when we teach messages, we'll teach one story or another story, but I wanna juxtapose these two stories side by side in Luke 8. And actually these stories are in Luke and Matthew and Mark, the same sort of story. And so starting at uh, verse 43, it says this, and a woman was there who had been the subject of bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at her feet. In the presence of all the, all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. You see, she thinks she's in trouble. She thinks she's gonna get in trouble. She thinks she may be, get killed or stoned. And she's saying, God, have mercy on me, please. I'm so sorry. But what Jesus says to her is, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she'll be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in him or go with him except Peter, John, and James, the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. And you know what they did? You know how they responded? They all laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then he told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. You see, this story is so incredible. And for me, what's really powerful is I realize, oh, these stories are like back to back. A lot of times I hear the story of the little girl coming back to life and then the woman touching Jesus. And I think, oh, these, these happened a long way from each other. But when you, when you hear the whole passage all together, you realize, oh, these stories are really close, maybe within hours of each other. 
And our team got to go to Israel this year and actually got to walk to this spot in Magdala. And so you see, uh, there's a picture right up here. And this is actually a church that's been built at this spot where they say, this is where this miracle happened right in this region. And so to de dedicate this spot, there's this room where anyone can go in and pray. And our team went in and had this incredible time of prayer. And you can see like right there, what I love about this story is all these sort of people were right around Jesus and crowding into him. But one person said, no, I know everyone else is touching him, but I'm not just gonna touch him. I'm gonna touch him and believe that something can happen in my life. And that's sort of reaching out with faith. Even though he's being touched everyone else, that sort of reaching out of faith is what healed her. But what's also powerful is we walked to the other spot where Jarius happened. And this was not far. It was probably as far from like the back of that room to Donut Taco Palace is how far these two things were. They were not far at all. And we realized like in the midst of that, we saw the synagogue where it was like, this is very likely where Jarius was teaching at the synagogue. And this is very likely where his home could have been. And so we walked into those ruins and saw where that story happened. And what hit me was one story was an act of faith, a person like having faith and God healed them. And then the other story, God was working amidst our laughter. God was working amidst our laughter. And I think sometimes we feel like, oh, I've got to have all the faith. I've got to have everything there and really lean in. But sometimes God works even when that faith isn't there. And even in the midst of laughter, either from ourselves or other, everyone else saying, you're praying those things, but God's not really going to act for you. You're believing these things, but God's not really listening to you. And Jesus sees a much bigger picture than we see. And as I was thinking about this message in this uh, series, I was thinking about times that I've prayed stuff really early in my life, and then it took years and years and years for that prayer to come. I remember like when I was you know, young and in college, we'd have like times and I would pray you know, one day like, okay, I wanna be married, God, like take care of my wife. I wanna have a baby. God, give me a healthy baby. Lord, give me a healthy baby. And I pray that even as a 20 year old, I'd pray those type of prayers. And then one day I met Sarah, this girl right here in this photo. And so you see like, that's, that's me, that's Sarah. I know the question you all have, which is like, how did he get her? And uh, God does miracles, one chapel. <laughs> God does me. And so anyway, we met, we dated, we fell in love. And then we'd start talking about, okay, like one day we're going to have a family. And uh, we went and eventually like found out that um, we're going to have a little baby girl and we'd pray for that little baby girl. Like, okay, we'd kind of lay hand on her belly and like, all right, take care of that baby. We knew her name was going to be Juliana. So we prayed for Juliana right there. And it was just like, okay, these are good, like nice prayers. And then I remember the day that uh, Juliana was born there was a cry much like that. And uh, this sort of baby cry there. And I'd never experienced that as a father. But before that cry happened, we were there and we went to the hospital and it was like, okay, Sarah was having contractions. It was finally time. And I was like calling different people and they were asking questions. They're like, well, what's going on? Like, how dilated is she? And I was like, that's kind of a personal question. How dilated are you? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I didn't know how, <laughs> I didn't know how this, all this was supposed to work. And so we went and they were going and the doctors were like doing all these sort of things. And so it's like, all right, we're doing the steps, that sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, it's a nine or right, it's a 10 now. And I, I had no idea. I was like, it's a nine or 10 on a scale of 100. Like, like what, <laughs> what do these numbers mean? <laughs> I'm not a scientist. And so then all of a sudden the doctors got this real sort of urgent look on their face like, oh, uh, this baby is coming and it's coming now. And so we went and they hooked her up to all these monitors. And then all of a sudden they saw like the heartbeat and the baby start to go down. And they realized they're like, oh, we think the umbilical cord is actually wrapped around her neck. And so I remember that moment 
And I prayed all these prayers when I was a 20 year old, when I was a college student, all these prayers, God, give me a healthy baby. But this time I was not praying a nice, cute prayer, a nice, like warm, fuzzy prayer. I was reaching out and I was like, God in heaven, reach down right now and make my baby okay. And it's those prayers when we believe God has power, God, I need you to do something. Those prayers are when we really, really believe and when we really need to believe that God is listening. And let me tell you something. A lot of times the answer to those prayers, they turn out differently. We don't know how they're gonna turn out, but our job is to be there and to really think like, we're not just praying in the air. We're not just saying nice words. We are reaching down and saying, God, you have power. Please heal my baby. You're praying whatever that prayer that is. God, you have power. Reach down, make a difference. Do something in my life. And Juliana was born and uh, you see me kind of new dad holding little baby there and uh, so adorable. But as I was there, I was just like, I had no idea as a dad over all the years, how many more prayers, those desperate prayers that I would pray. And honestly, even as I'm hearing here today, I have no, no idea how many desperate prayers are coming from me. But when I pray those prayers one chapel, I'll tell you this, I believe in my heart and my soul that God is listening to me. And so that's what I wanna challenge you to, to today. As we close this series up, kind of last idea is this. There are three simple steps that you can do, and I'm gonna give them to you super quickly. Three simple steps that you can do. If you want it to be like, oh, not just prayer's a nice idea, but I actually want prayer to be a part of who I am. I actually want prayer to be a part of my life. Here are the three simple steps. One, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Prayer's not a performance. You don't have to say all the fancy words. Part of the reason Jesus gave us an outline here, this sort of idea of things that we can pray is like, okay, I know every single day I can kind of return to these ideas every single day. Next idea is this, keep it real. You know those friends, those really, really close friends that everyone says, hey, how are you doing? And you're like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then you have that close friend that says, how are you doing? And you tell them the truth. That's who God is. He's that close friend that you don't have to put on the nice, happy, fake mask. You don't have to be like, okay, Lord, whatever else you can say, God, I'm a mess right now. God, I'm really scared. God, I'm really happy. Whatever those things are, but keep it real. If you're not real with God, you're not believing that he's listening to you. And so that realness is what makes it that sort of authentic conversation. And probably most importantly is this, step three, keep it up. Here's the truth about me. The people who I'm closest to in my life are the people who I talk to all the time. The same for you. The people who you're really close to are the people who you talk to a lot. The more you talk with someone, the closer you get with them. And so if it's like, okay, at the very beginning of the message, you're like, okay, I'm raising my hand. God, I wanna, I wanna pray more. Rob, I'm telling you, at our little living room small group, I wanna pray more. What I have to encourage you with this morning is keep it up. I deal with uh, writers a lot. I do some writing myself and people are like, what's the key to writing? And what I tell people the key to writing is, is like, Pick a time and do it every single day and like hold that time and make it sacred. Find that time for God. It can be in the car, it can be in the morning, but make that time yours of like, okay, every single day, I'm gonna reach out to God and have that prayer. It doesn't have to be a performance, but it has to be honest and it has to be simple. And so that's what I wanna leave you with today. As we, as we close, I actually wanna invite the band to come on up here. And we're gonna sing a song that's actually a song that was turned to the Lord's Prayer. We sung it earlier. And as the band sings this song, I wanna invite all of you to kind of put everything down, take a deep breath. You can close your eyes. And during this first part of the song, I want you to just pray and just kind of practice praying, 
those prayers to God and pray those prayers as if God is actually up in heaven listening to you. Pray those prayers as if God is actually in this room right next to you listening to you because that's the truth. He's there. So I want us to practice that a little bit this morning. You don't have to pray out loud, but really from your heart, pray those prayers. And then after you do that, I wanna invite you to just stand and kind of worship with us as we sing these last words to the song. And so I wanna pray over you and then let's sit, take a moment and pray amongst ourselves. Lord God, we thank you this morning. I thank you for each and every soul in this room, Lord. I thank you that you are God who's not distant, who's not passive, but remembers every prayer that we're praying and every prayer that we've ever prayed. So Jesus, we turn our heart, we turn our eyes to you this morning. We pray that you would be in us and with us. Listen to our words in your name. Amen.